The next time you're on Interstate 80, stop in and see the folks at the Iowa 80 Truck Stop at Exit 284 in Walcott, Iowa. They're always open and ready to serve you. Enjoy a sit-down meal at the Iowa 80 Kitchen or grab a bite from one of their nine quick-serve restaurants. You'll love their clean restrooms, huge gift store, beautiful convenience store, and, of course, the Super Truck Showroom stocked with plenty of chrome, lights, and more. While you're there, don't forget to visit the Iowa 80 Trucking Museum next door. It's free. The entire team at the Iowa 80 is very excited to celebrate 60 years with you. They look forward to being your home away from home for another 60 years. Sending you a giant thank you from Iowa 80, the world's largest truck stop on I-80, exit 284 in Walcott, Iowa. Iowa 80. It's Red Eye Radio. Gary McNamara and Eric Harley talk about everything from politics to social issues and news of the day. Whether you're up late or you're just starting your day, welcome to the show from the Uniden America Studios. This is Red Eye Radio. All across America and around the world, we are Red Eye Radio. Good morning. I'm Gary McNamara. Well... I was sleeping, and when I woke up, I had that little red light on my phone that was blinking. I checked it out, and uh, Eric is really under the weather. So he will not be in. And it uh, shocked me a little bit. Now, you, if you've been paying attention, if, uh, paying attention, if you've been listening, I know everybody's paying attention. If you've been, <laughs> have you been paying attention? <laughs> if you haven't been paying attention, I'm going to scold you. <laughs> the... Um, uh, if you've been listening this week, uh, you know that when we were on vacation last week, even the Friday before, both of us were just so sick. Eric had uh, Eric had COVID. Him and he and his wife were uh, uh, tested uh, positive for COVID uh, last week, and uh, but everybody was was all better, and I was better. And when he came in, when he when Eric came in Sunday night, he said he was still really weak, but I thought he sounded great on the air the last couple of days. And I would sit, I'm, I'm in a different position here, but I was sitting right over there to my right. And a couple of times, especially last night, he would just, you know, uh, go into an explanation of something, a, a, a mini monologue. And I was like, wow, he sounds great. He really doesn't sound anything. He's wonderful. And so I was a little bit shocked when I got that message. Uh, that uh, he was actually heading to the ER. So haven't heard anything uh, since, but uh, just uh, hope and keep him in your thoughts and prayers. And, and hopefully it's just uh, something that he can recuperate here in the next uh, uh, day or so. But, um, uh, yeah, a uh, lot of stuff going around. A lot of people have been, and, and for a lot of people that I know, it wasn't COVID. I don't know. For me, I don't know what it was because I tested and I tested negative. Now, you know, that's the thing that when you look back at it and I've, I've seen enough research that says everybody was exposed to COVID and probably a hundred percent of the population, you know, over the last three and a half years were exposed to it in some manner or form. And most people it was, uh, you know, it affected them in a, in a very, very, uh, light 
uh, way. Uh, but um, the second time, second time he's uh, really got quite sick from it. So I don't know if I don't know if this is uh, COVID. Now he tested a few times, or whether it's uh, something else. But we are thinking of him. We want him back. I want him back to the way he was yesterday because it was just so great. He was just, I was like, wow, okay, good. It's over. He's he's doing fine because he was just rocking last night. So we hope he's uh, all better. I mean, man, there's so much to talk about. The musical chairs uh, of the uh, Republicans seeking a speaker. We'll get into the minutia of that here in a little bit. There's something else I want to cover first. But I'll tell you yesterday, and I was talking to uh, to Alan, our phone screener, I said, did you see when that came up yesterday that, uh, well, one of the things that the Republicans are considering is a co-speakership, McCarthy and Jordan. It's like, oh, my God. Oh, you got me. Oh. Uh, and, and so everything blew up. Uh, yesterday, as as, uh, as you know, and uh, we'll get to all of that uh, coming up. But there is a new speaker nominee, Mike Johnson of, of uh, Louisiana. So we will get to that coming up in just a little bit. I guess the vote somewhere noon tomorrow is where it's supposed to go. But so much uh, was happening uh, yesterday. But I wanted to just, there's two things I, I want to start out today reading and the first thing I want to read, and this is the poll that was done about what Americans think about Israel and Hamas. And this was a poll that was actually taken uh, last week when we were on vacation. And I'm actually, the first thing I'm going to read is from somebody who's a friend of the show. Not a political pundit at all. Not involved in the media at all. In fact, uh, is in the fracking business, has been a longtime listener to the show. And it was on the Harvard-Harris poll, and it's my friend. I don't want to use his last name because I didn't ask permission to use it, but uh, a friend of the show, great friend of the show for years, uh, uh, my friend Carl. And I'm going to read you what he had to write and then what Noah Rothman wrote in National Review. Half of the American people under the age of 35 think that the massacre of Israelis by Hamas can be justified by Palestinian grievances. Jews in America are in serious trouble. In the latest Harris-Harvard poll, 76% of American voters say that the Hamas killing of 1,200 Israeli civilians on Israel cannot be justified by the grievances of the Palestinians, and fully 24% say it can. A majority of the respondents between the ages of 18 and 24, 51% feel that the mass murder of Israeli Jews is justified. And 48% of those between the ages of 25 and 34 agree the slaughter was justified. What the actual, and just the letter F. 
Half of young Americans think that killing Jewish civilians is perfectly okay as long as you know they deserve it. And yes, they know this is about the Jews because the very next question asked if those same Hamas attacks on Jews were genocidal. And in this case, over two-thirds of those 18 to 34 agreed that, yes, the attacks were genocidal against the Jews, meaning that a significant number of people under the age of 34 think that genocide is okay against Jewish civilians as long as there is strong enough grievance. There is a strong enough grievance. The language of grievance indicates that the people who hold immoral anti-Semitic opinions are overwhelmingly on the political left. And the cross tabs of the poll give hints that this is indeed the case. 36% of self-identified liberals of all ages agree the attack was justified compared with 16% of conservatives. Perhaps more concerning is the people with the highest levels of education are most likely to agree with 29% of college graduates justifying the Hamas genocidal murders versus 21% of those who did not graduate. The young people who are best educated are the most likely to be anti-Semites. Not just anti-Semites, they justify the most extreme kind of violence against Jews. For years, we have been told ad nauseum that the only anti-Semitism out there was from the extreme right. But there is a serious problem where America's young people are being taught immoral lessons on campus where the most heinous crimes imaginable are perfectly okay as long as the victims are considered to be privileged and the slaughterers are victims. According to this younger generation, does this justification to murder and rape apply to American Zionist Jews as well? It's not a difficult leap to get to the conclusion when your entire moral sense is so perverted to begin with. People wonder how Germans could have become so enthusiastic murderers of Jews. This poll shows exactly how. Teach a generation of young people that Jews are oppressors and the oppressed have a moral authority to murder every man, woman, and child. Decades of anti-Israeli propaganda has borne fruit for Jew haters. They always claimed it was merely a political position, but Jews knew it was personal, and this poll proves it. Jews have not been criticized by anti-Zionist, but demonized. That demonization has turned into supporting genocide. The trend of younger people more likely to justify a genocidal attack on Jews means that things are not going to get any better in this country. It also shows that all the efforts to stop anti-Semitism 
with liberal education have not only failed, but may have backfired. I'll go into that here in a moment. October 7th was a watershed for Israeli Jews, but it may end up being just as significant for the future of American Jews as well. If nearly half of Americans under 35 believe that killing Jewish civilians is okay, then the future for American Jews is as bleak as it's ever been. One only has to glance at social media to see that the demonization of Jews has reached new levels. This poll shows that it will only get worse. And that's my friend Carl, a great friend of the show for the longest time. And for the longest time, because he's in the fracking business, we have, you know, we have uh, talked energy for, oh, I don't know, probably since the beginning of when Eric and I started working together. And that goes all the way back uh, 18 years. Uh, Another article to read because uh, uh, coming up because it makes the point that I made the other day. It ties it all together. That actually liberalism is what's causing this. Identity politics is what's causing it. It may be a little bit of a different label that is being used, but it's identity politics. And it's what we said all along. Nobody should be shocked at this. The left has been using identity politics to demonize on a consistent basis. And this is what they teach in schools. This is what they teach in college. And so we will get uh, we will get to that more of it. And by the way, the uh, did you see that people over the age of 65, 95% believe it was not justified. I mean, those those are as big as landslide numbers. Just to show you the cultural shift that has been created by liberalism in higher education in our schools. And we'll get to more specifics on that coming up. 866 866- 90 Red Eye. This report is brought to you by Shell Rotella. With advanced synthetic technology, is designed to help keep your rig running with more mileage and less maintenance. As the seasons change, so does truck maintenance. Cold weather can affect everything from your batteries and air brake system to tire inflation and fuel lines. Here's a maintenance tip to help make sure your rig is ready when winter comes knocking. When temperatures fall, the paraffin wax in diesel fuel can thicken so much It clogs fuel filters or solidifies to the point where it will no longer flow. Invest in a new fuel filter now and consider adding a winter fuel additive to your maintenance routine to help prevent fuel gelling. To learn more about winterizing your truck, find a professional technician today and ask about their fuel additives and fuel filters. Coming up, more with Gary McNamara and Eric Harley. It's Red Eye Radio. And now for a segment called Just Something I've Noticed, brought to you by our friends at Motel 6. Just something I've noticed, bargain hunting is back. I mean, bargain hunting's always been around. We always love a great deal. But man, everywhere you look, people are bargain hunting, you know. 
There's so many great ways to find great deals. Hey, I have a great find in your bargain hunting journey. Book online at motel6.com. Use the code CPREDEYE to get 15% off your stay at Motel 6 or Studio 6. With almost 1,500 locations across the country, there's almost always a Motel 6 or Studio 6 nearby. And truck parking is available at most locations. Enjoy a clean, comfortable room at a price that's a real bargain when you use the code CPREDEYE. That's the letters CPREDEYE, all one word, for 15% off your stay at Motel6.com. That is a bargain. That's just something I've noticed. Brought to you by Motel 6. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. It's Friday Radio. I'm Gary McNamara. Eric's under the weather, not in uh, tonight. We hope uh, he gets well very, very, very soon. Uh, I Also, I, I read uh, you uh, something that uh, a friend of the show, uh, somebody who's not in the media, uh, wrote about the uh, Harvard-Harris survey that was done actually last week, which is mind-boggling when you think about it. You know what's mind-boggling? The young people would actually say that the slaughter of senior citizens, the raping of young women, the murder of children, uh, and you know the 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 burning of people alive, citizens alive in their homes was justified. That they would take a poll in the United States and would be so proud to say, "Yep, it was justified." Not even trying to hide it. And uh, Noah Rothman writes, "Why do so many young people support Hamas?" Uh, he said, "The first order of business is to heap scorn on a generation that has adopted this morally bankrupt perspective." and the older adults in their lives who have so maliciously led them astray. The second task at hand is for us to understand what convinced the younger generation to sacrifice their humanity upon the altar of an intellectual fad. By the way, I don't like anybody using that term that this is somehow intellectual, uh, because it's it's not. Because the answer can be found, at least in part, in one word that is framework. On October 13th, The Atlantic published a fascinating reflection by Helen Lewis on the callous indifference her compatriots on the American left, she's on the left, have shown toward the wanton murder of Jews for being Jews. She correctly identified the origins of this phenomena in the intellectualization of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict on college campuses, which flattens the distinctions between civilian and terrorist, West Bank and Gaza, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and the Palestinian Authority, and Fatah, and so on. But the flattening is the outcome of the instrument that pummels the complexities of the region into an unrecognizable paste that is that detestable word, framework. Fitting Israel into the intersectional framework. Now stay with me for a moment here, because I know it seems like it's getting a little bit complicated 
We can simplify it here in a moment. It's saying exactly what we said uh, before vacation and since we've been back. Fitting Israel into the intersectional framework has always been difficult because its Jewish citizens are both, and this is her writing in the Atlantic, from the left, understand this. Fitting Israel into the intersectional framework has always been difficult because its Jewish citizens are both historically oppressed, the survivors of an attempt to wipe them out entirely, and currently in a dominant position over the Palestinians. Uh, Lewis uh, wrote, intersectionality is indeed the framework on display here. It started out as little more than a thought experiment, and it's transformed into a way of life. Pioneered uh, by Kimberly Crenshaw, theoretical intersectionality. You notice this is when we talk about the radical transgender movement, the same words are being used. Theoretical intersectionality asks its adherents to conceive of their fellow citizens not as unique individuals, but as stereotypical cutouts representing their respective democratic or excuse me, demographic traits. It presupposes that everyone in the American melting pot owns a variety of immutable traits, some of which are subject to more discrimination than others. I don't need to go any further. It's what we have said from the very beginning. This all comes from identity politics, judging people by groups and not as individuals. It is the core of the Democratic Party and liberalism. And while some liberals are shocked by this, and I haven't heard anybody on the right say it the way that we have said it so far. I haven't read it anywhere. Now, uh, Noah Rothman and and the writer from The Atlantic, um, uh, Helen Lewis, is using different words and explaining it in a way which may, might be a little bit more complicated and, uh, quote, intellectual. But this is identity politics. And as we said, this is identity politics of judging critical race theory is the point that whites are culturally racist to the point that it's in their DNA and they all think the same and therefore we must change society that that is the reality of the world, which is false to begin with. We'll continue coming up. to Red Eye Radio from the Uniden America Studios. And I'm Gary McNamara. Eric is out sick this morning, so it's me and you. Uh, so much to, uh, to to talk about, but uh, just uh, start off the show because I think this is probably something that would really shock most people. When you see the Harvard-Harris poll that you had uh, the majority of 18 to uh, 24-year-olds believe that Hamas was justified in what they did. And the majority of those young, I think it was 48% of those 18 to 34, believe it was justified what Hamas did. Like, how do you get there? Because, uh, and, and I started out the show by reading 
something that a friend of the show, our friend Carl, wrote on uh, on Facebook yesterday. And he's not a media guy. He's a fracking guy. <laughs> uh, and then went to Noah Rothman's column in National Review where he talks about uh, The Atlantic published a uh, story by Helen Lewis on the callous indifference of, and she's on the left, of the American left that they've shown to the wanton murder of Jews for being Jews and talks about identity politics, uses a different name for it, but exactly what we said. And when this happened and we saw the reaction, we said, well, yeah, this is simply identity politics, add Jews. That's all it is. And that's what she, she agrees with that. She's actually making that point. And then Noah Rothman goes into uh, theoretical uh, intersectionality, which is something a term that you've used on a cons- you've you've heard on a consistent basis when it comes to the radical transgender movement. Everything, all this insanity that you see, is all related to identity politics. And I just want to read this last paragraph here. In practice. The framework reduces humans to their various demographic signifiers, and it does so in a particularly chauvinistic way. The stereotypes that intersectionality requires its adherents uh, to marinate in are uniquely American. So the descendants of American slaves are owed no more deference than recent African or Caribbean migrants because the cliched racist will not draw those distinctions. Now apply this framework to American Jews. In the anti-Semitic imagination, American Jews are comfortable, powerful, and well-connected. They enjoy influence and success disproportionate to their numbers. It's a bigoted conception, but that is the point of intersectionality, to think in bigoted terms if only to understand and navigate what intersectional theorists believe in the fundamentally bigoted American landscape. But once you subscribe to this philosophy, you're just, you've just uh, internalized plain old anti-Semitism. Through this framework, people are reduced to statistics and their tormentors Begin uh, become uh, automatons responding predictively to a set of historical incentives. Intersectionality in that regard is no different from the no different from the framework of Marxism, which asks its adherents to view the workings of history through the prism of class and capital distribution. Individuals are robbed of their agency through the application of this theory, and events are boiled down to root causes that almost have nothing to do with their perpetrators. Intersectionality is distinct only insofar as it substitutes class and capital with race and ethnicity. Everything that we see. You know, we, we went the other day, we went through the, the, the DEI that, that corporations are involved in and talked about how bigoted it is because it makes assumptions about people. It makes assumptions about groups. 
And you can do that. And we tore that apart, the whole DEI movement that most corporations now have embraced in their training. And it's absolutely intolerant, bigoted, and racist. And we went through a few examples when we talked about it. You sit there and you say, well, how can any young person, because you, you, it's absolutely frightening when you see half of young people between the ages of 18 and 24 believe that Hamas was justified in the United States. And you say, how can that be? Identity politics. Identity politics and the ability of the higher, quote, higher institutions of learning to promote bigotry, racism, anti-Semitism, misogyny, presented in a way of equity. When it's doing the exact opposite. And as we said before, and I think this is a very important point. Which is why we said, because when we when we first started talking about, because we had warned about the radical transgender movement in this country and, and where and where it was going. And we said, wow, you know, you, you don't underestimate the 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 strength of the marketing in higher education of intersectionality, or as they call it here, framework intersectionality or identity politics. Don't underestimate it because, as we said way over a decade ago, that if it went to the point in the radical transgender movement, it would destroy feminism. Think about that. Liberal feminism was was destroyed by the insanity that men can be women because they say so. If you can convince young people and brainwash young people that a man can be a woman, what can't you convince them of? And that's where we are as a nation right now. You wonder, oh, it could never happen in the United States. Oh, the slippery slope. Oh, you people are just being ridiculous. Well, there you have it. Harvard Harris is not, polling is not a Republican pollster. And you had young people willing to say, yes, the beheading of babies. The killing of innocent civilians is justified. And Hamas is the good guys. And the liberals want you to pay the student loans of those young people. So they can continue to learn that insanity 
and the barbaric mindset that is being taught at major universities here in the United States. The, uh, the final uh, paragraph that he wrote here in National Review, America's young people have sacrificed their capacity for rational thought and human decency all on their own. But the inhumanity they've come around to endorsing is an intellectual exercise. Yep. Amazing. But that's where we are. And you see it. You can see it in the in the in, in the polling in the in, in the polling. Ninety five percent of people over the age of sixty five know this. You know, there's no justification for what happened. And fifty one percent of young people, and the higher educated they are, the higher their level of education, the more anti Semitic young people are. And you had young people willing. This is the thing. They're not ashamed of it. It's not like they're hiding and going, okay, I'm a, I'm a bigot and, and uh, I believe in genocidal murder, uh, but I better be quiet about it because, that, because I could be in big trouble. No. A pollster calls them and they go, nope, I'm for genocide. And that's not an exaggeration, me saying that, because in the polling, the young people, everybody identified it as genocide, and they were okay with genocide. That's the point that just fries your brain. You're like, you got to be kidding me. Nope. If you want to get in, we do have a couple lines open. We'd love to hear from you. 866-90-RED-EYE. Lines open for your calls. 866-90-RED-EYE on Red Eye Radio. It's Red Eye Radio. He's Eric Harley. He has the morning off. I'm Gary McNamara. I am here and he has the morning off because he's under the weather. So, uh, Hopefully he's uh, okay tonight, but uh, yeah, he was he was sick when I got the text message. So hopefully he's back uh, tomorrow or very very soon. Eight six six ninety Red Eye coming up. Corinne Jean Pierre. L- let me play this yesterday because at least the White House press corps is starting to figure things out. Here's a question asked to her. I want to ask you about um, current energy prices and Iran, if I could. Um, so Iran makes 70% of its revenue from oil. Um, it's doubled that oil output since 2019, adding $40 billion to revenues. So are the president's current energy policies giving Iran enough money to fund terror groups? Because the price, well, the price of oil has gone up under this president. Uh, the former President Trump, the pr- average price of Brent oil was $58. Um, under this president, it's $83 a barrel. So the price of oil is more. Um, is that giving Iran enough money to fund these terror groups in the Middle East? I, I mean, I, I wholeheartedly disagree that we're, we're, you know, we're, our actions are giving. Is that what you're saying? 
Can you say that again? The current energy policies in the U.S. From, from our from, energy from, policies. Yeah, see the price of oil go up. Because okay. when, you, when you restrict um, supply here in the United States, it's forcing get, to get the global supply from somewhere else. OPEC is cutting prices of oil, so the price of oil goes up. Yeah, and we're not part of OPEC, as you right. know. Right, but and so they're going to make their decisions on on whatever they decide. We are not a member of OPEC. But the administration has decided to regulate the oil industry here in the U.S. and restrict investment, uh, future investment in the oil supply in the U.S. And and so is is as the price of oil goes up, is that giving Iran enough money to fund these terror groups? It seems to be a big jump. Uh, and so uh, certainly I'm not going to speak into that type of hypothetical. It sounds like. Okay, it's not a hypothetical, but uh, not not asking the question that Trump enforcing embargo. Uh, and as soon as Biden got into office, he didn't enforce the embargo and allowed that money, that oil money to be freed to Iran, who uses that money for uh, their terrorist proxies to attack Israel and now and consistently U.S. interests. And the United States, as we've now found out, they've, you know, the proxies have attacked uh, American uh, military sites. And so he didn't go to that point. His point was, and it's a good point. Because it, it takes it to the it takes it to the second level. Not only are you funding them, but by restricting and not encouraging energy production in the United States. Oil is $30 more than when Trump was in office, and therefore that's extra profits that Iran can use for terrorism. And she called it a hypothetical, which, of course, it's not a hypothetical. It's what actually is happening right now. So you can see they can't answer that question, and that's why I wish the Republicans were not in the situation they're on now where they could pound this every single day. And they could have a focal point, which would be a speaker, uh, to uh, uh, to do so. And so we'll get to that also coming up, the musical chairs, plus some of your calls uh, and, uh, and, and comments. And you can see the movement of the White House. Okay, we need to maybe have a humanitarian pause. Here we go. 866-90-RED-EYE. Top of the Hour News is brought to you by House Products. Visit HouseProducts.com. This is Red Eye Radio on Westwood One. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. It's Red Eye Radio. Gary McNamara and Eric Harley talk about everything from politics to social issues and news of the day. Whether you're up late or you're just starting your day, welcome to the show. 
from the Uniden America Studios, this is Red Eye Radio. All across the USA and around the world, we are Red Eye Radio. I'm Gary McNamara. Eric is under the weather, so he's not here. It's me and you. Just a couple more things that uh, I was just thinking of during the, the top of the hour here that I want to, uh, to to mention, in case you just tuned in right now. Uh, we started out the, uh, the, the show talking about the Harvard-Harris poll that was done uh, last week that showed that 51% of American young people between the ages of 18 and 24 think Hamas was justified in doing what they did. And the majority of those young people called it genocide. And so they agreed with genocide, where you see that 60, well, 95% of people above the age of 65 said, no, it was Hamas was not justified uh, committing genocide. And you wonder how, you know, you get to this point, and you get to this point because of higher education in this country. And the insanity and the identity politics that have been promoted by the left and the Democratic Party, as we have stated. I'm not saying all Democrats are anti-Semites. But the Democratic Party has institutionalized identity politics, judging people by groups. As we mentioned earlier in an article, uh, in another article that was uh, that was written in The Atlantic, and the writer who was liberal talking about Identity politics is what's responsible for this. And the brainwashing of young people to judge people by groups and not as individuals, as we said from the very beginning when you saw what was going on here, we said this is what it's about. We're finally now getting to the big picture of what is going on in college campuses. And the whole thing of victim-oppressor, intersectionality. Judging people by the group that they're in and not as individuals. And that's what gets you to the point of American young people, the majority. And 18 to 34, it's 48%. Believe Hamas was justified. In beheading babies, raping women, burning civilians alive, executing at point-blank range. Harvard-Harris poll is not a Republican or a conservative pollster. The fact that they did a poll and these people, actually these young people, were willing to answer that way. There was no shame. Promoting a genocide is something that they wanted the pollster to know. And you just, you you shake your head in absolute disgust. And as I read uh, something that a friend of uh, the show, not somebody who's in the media, wrote our friend Carl, who said, this is to the, to the young people. This is how Nazi Germany got going. 
which is how it enthusiastically supporting the genocide of civilians. And as I said earlier, and you want us to pay for their education? I don't think so. Because if they will go in that direction and have that mindset for Jews, why can't you and the group you're in be next? We talk about American politics today, and I've, I've said many times before, I think, in American politics, that the acceptance of lying by the public is a huge problem. Not that politicians lie, but the, the public accepting lies. You know, we've talked about on both sides the whole thing that, you know, the election was stolen and, and uh, you know, the, the Democrats going crazy at Republicans who said the election was stolen and this is a downfall of democracy and everything else. And as I said, that's really a wash between both parties because both parties have used that. Democrats used it, as we know. The stolen election, Republicans have used it. And you look at that and you can say part of that is based on the fact that people want elections to be fair. And if you lose, the first thing you might do is look at the opposition and say, yeah, but they're screwing us over here or in 2020 because of irregularities. You would look at it and say, okay, well, then if they did this, then this must have happened too. And that's a problem when you have an opinion that isn't based on all facts. But that's a whole different ball game, a completely different ball game than getting to the point as we are now where the majority of young people believe that genocide of Jewish civilians is justified. And as the polls showed, the vast majority of those who believe that of young people are liberals. They're Democrats. And this is a direct result of what is being taught at our universities. And if you don't think that we're far gone, just think of the fact that they didn't even wish to hide it. I guess my question is, is it even higher? Are there some young people that said, I'm not going to answer this? But 51% of young people between the ages of 18 and 24 and 48% of young people between the ages of 18 and 34 had no problem saying, yep, we know it's a genocide and the genocide is acceptable. That's the filth and barbarism of where the left has gone. And I agree with Nora Rothman, we've said this before, that all this is under the umbrella of Marxism. Same thing. Judge people as groups, that group's an oppressor, this group is a victim. 
And as we've stated over and over again, you're never going to solve a damn thing in this country if you don't view people as individuals. We'll we'll be constantly in this state of chaos, which is what they want. Because if you're in the state of chaos, that's where they hope that they can get control and much more control. Because when it gets down to it, when I say it's about Marxism, it's about power and control. And they will do anything to get power and control. So you think about it. Think about how this has all changed. The big thing, oh, it's horrible. Democracy has ended because uh, one side says the election was stolen. The other side says the election was stolen. We've talked about this many times before and gone into the minutia. And we may, with the whole Jenna Ellis thing, if we've got time, we'll have time here in the next couple of days to to talk about what's going on there, as we did, I think, uh, two days ago um, with the Sidney Powell uh, plea. But it's a whole different ballgame saying the election's stolen versus the institutionalization of genocidal approval of civilians that's being taught at our universities in this nation. Whole different ballgame. And it shows you the identity politics, everything that we've seen, the identity politics. You know, the riots that we saw in 2020 based on the lie about police. We talked about the other day, Mayor Bowser backing off on all the laws that they had passed, saying, no, 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 there's too much crime, there's too much crime. Everything you see is about creating chaos. Well, the only thing I can look at is they want the chaos. Because if there's chaos out there that they created, well, then we created it and we'll solve it. Give us more power and control and we'll solve the chaos that we've created. But think about how horrible that is. When you look at the numbers of young people that believe that beheading babies is justified. In the United States. And not a small amount, 51% of the young people polled. 18 to 24, 18 to 34, 48%. And I have to keep emphasizing that they understood and believed that it was genocide. And we're still okay with it. That's the filth that liberalism has created in the United States of America. Absolutely horrendous. But that's the reality. All right, coming up on the show, we'll get uh, to talking about the speaker. Oh, Corrine Jean-Pierre. Because we said yesterday on yesterday's show, hey, you want to see where the anti-Semitism is? In the White House, here's Corrine Jean-Pierre asked a question about anti-Semitism and goes right to anti or goes to right to Islamophobia. Well, she came out yesterday. Let me play this quick audio cut here. This is just a, a small segment of what she had to say yesterday. Here's what she had opened up with. Make something clear uh, at the top, because I understand how important uh, moral clarity is, especially at this time. So when Jews are targeted... 
because of their beliefs or their identity, when Israel is singled out because of anti-Jewish hatred, that is anti-Semitism. Boy, uh, the Democrats in Congress must have been absolutely going ballistic over that. That's the only reason that she would come out and say, oh, I appreciate the chance to address this. Yes, I did mishear the question. As I have foot-stomped many times from the podium and on the air, anti-Semitism is an abomination that this president has fought against his entire life. You know how you know why you know how you know she's lying? That she waited 24 hours to correct it. That's how you know she's lying. Because we picked up on it immediately and said, oh my God, I can't believe that she actually did that. Their Democrats are going to be going crazy. Democrats in the Senate, the calls to the White House must have been never ending. And what the hell is she doing when she did that yesterday? But still, it wasn't enough pressure. She didn't recognize it herself. They didn't come out with a statement 15 minutes later saying, sorry, misheard the question. And they were getting feedback immediately on it. That's the anti-Semitism that is in the White House. I don't believe for a second that she misheard the question. Because no one was asking about Islamophobia. 86690 Red Eye. Brought to you by FPPF Fuel Power Max. Leased owner operators should be aware of four common revenue myths, lest you fall into the trap of mistaking revenue for profit. Myth one concentrate on increasing revenue because costs will take care of themselves. This is not true, as costs are fundamental to the profit equation and the area where owners exert the most control to improve. Myth two more revenue per mile is the answer to all problems. Though carrier pay packages differ in structure, revenue per mile really doesn't change much from company to company. But there can be a big difference in miles, overall gross revenue, reimbursements, and fees. Myth three, all you have to do to be successful is run a lot of miles. In reality, revenue is only half of the profit equation. Costs are the other half. It's possible to generate a lot of revenue, yet spend a dollar ten to make every dollar. Myth four, you can tell how well you're doing by the size of your settlement check. The settlement check is only a part of the success picture. Miles driven, loads hauled, conditions, mechanical problems, time off, and especially costs all have to be considered. Brought to you by Shell Rotella. With advanced synthetic technology is designed to help keep your rig running with more mileage and less maintenance. Get in touch with Red Eye Radio, toll free at 866-90-RED-EYE. It's Red Eye Radio. I'm Gary McNamara. Eric has a morning off because he is really under the weather. Hopefully he gets better uh, uh, soon. Uh, I want to play this uh, audio from um, Kirby yesterday because Kirby said, and all over yesterday you saw so many, I mean, uh, conservative and liberal uh, publications out there all promoting the fact that the U.S. is advising uh, Israel not, uh, you know, to go into Gaza. Uh, and that there should be a humanitarian pause. We know Wall Street Journal laid it out yesterday how the humanitarian aid, as soon as it gets in there, Hamas takes it. 
It makes it so they can live in the tunnels. They take the fuel. They take the food. They take it all. We knew this was going to come up. We knew that the administration would do, would eventually turn on the Israelis and say, well, no, you need to have a pause for humanitarian reasons. Here's Kirby yesterday after he said that, oh, we're not telling them anything to do. We're not telling them. We're not telling them. No, they're advising them. <laughs> we're not telling them. We're advising them. Stupid play on words again. On the humanitarian pause, is it something that the U.S. is actively pursuing or calling for that to be the case? Well, you heard the Secretary of State talk about the uh, the need to look at that, to, to consider uh, the 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 possibility of a humanitarian pause to allow aid to get in and get in unfettered uh, and to allow for the safe movement of people out. But again, there's a lot that goes into that. There you go. He said, yes, absolutely. We don't we don't tell them what to do. No, we advise them what to do. What's the difference between tell and advise? In politics. Wow. And then, uh, then, then this one. Jeez, L- listen to this. Here we go. Um, sir, as you have the um, Australian Prime Minister coming tomorrow, in the midst of all of this activity around the Middle East, can you just give us a sense from the president's perspective? How is he balancing these two sort of immediate foreign policy objectives versus sort of his longer-term foreign policy object- objectives that the um, Prime Minister's visit sort of embodies? Well. He's balancing it well. He's doing, he's doing it. I mean, uh, if you want to give him a you know report card, A plus. I mean, it- president's got an A plus for how he's handling all of this and uh, his international uh, foreign relations. Anybody buy that? Jeez. Oh man, I'm telling you. I mean, we are. If Eric was here, we could both say it together. But you know, we're we're doomed. You you just think of everything here that we've talked about, and it's just absolutely. You you just don't think. And I was, I was running a bunch of errands yesterday, and just driving around, thinking to myself, I can't believe that every day we go in. And it's just like, at times, and we're not because we talk all the times. But you feel like you're speechless, like. Every day we go on the air going, I can't believe they're doing this. I can't believe they're doing this. I can't believe they're doing this. And every day when you don't think it can get worse, it gets worse. And I think maybe it was, you know, going through that poll, that the, the Harvard-Harris poll and seeing how young people think. Because that's a success for liberalism. That's what liberalism wants. That has been their goal at the universities. Liberalism slash Marxism. We'll talk more coming up. 86690 Red Eye. Giving you 70% each night. Eric Harley and Gary McNamara on Red Eye Radio. And I'm Gary McNamara. Eric is out uh, sick uh, today. I got a, a text message. Uh, he was great, as I mentioned earlier in the show. He was great yesterday. In fact, I remember 
in a moment, just knowing how sick he was last week. Now, I'd gotten sick at the same time. This is two weeks ago before we went on vacation. And that Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we were both sick. I mean, we were and, and, and on the air, and it was just like, okay, we can, we can do the show if both of us are here. And then uh, the Thursday night, Friday morning show, right before we went on vacation, eh, we decided to take a day off before vacation. You know, you always have that sick day right before vacation. Yeah, that's what we decided to do. Uh, we were actually both in the studio, though. I hadn't, when I, uh, I came into work, and I just, I was recuperating a lot faster than he was. Now, I never tested positive for COVID. Eric did when we were on vacation. Uh, but uh, I never did. I And I tested myself before I went to see my, my dad. And uh, uh, so we came in that day, and, and Eric was just, he was just bad. And he looked at me and says, I came in just so you don't have to do the show alone. I said, well, I can't do the show alone. I haven't slept in 30 hours. I'm feeling a little better, but my mind is just gone. I I came in so you don't have to be on alone. And we looked at each other and says, we can't do it. It was like 20 minutes before the show, we were in the studio. And it was like, we just just can't. And then, then... then we were on vacation after after that, and so I I went to New York, and it wasn't until Monday, where Eric texted me and said he was still really bad, and he was that entire week. So I mean, it was almost it was because uh, Sunday night when he came in, he was still telling me how weak he was, and I was amazed the last two nights, like wow, he's just he's just going off. I mean, he's just it doesn't seem like he's weak at all. And last night I actually. Just sat back in a little bit of admiration going, look at him go. Good. I'm glad he's feeling good. And so when I woke up and got the text where he's just said, nope, not feeling well at all, just, you know, respiratory problems and, and all that, um, it's like, oh, boy. So I really haven't communicated with him much. It was just a, a quick text and um, have not heard back from him. So hopefully he's sleeping. Getting some... Uh, some some good rest there. Uh, all right, eight six six ninety red eye. So Mike Johnson from Louisiana now uh, has uh, been nominated. Have no idea uh, how many votes that he is. Let me go real quickly here to the hill.com. Because normally, by this time, you know how many, uh, you know how many. Uh, uh, are are willing to are going to vote against him? If anybody knows, normally it would be the Hill. House Republicans nominated uh, Mike Johnson. The the Hill dot com. By the way, I'm looking at um, House Republicans nominated Mike Johnson for Speaker Tuesday evening, making him the fourth GOP lawmaker to win the conference's nod and its second nominee within a day after House Majority Whip Tom Emmer uh, dropped out of running amid GOP opposition. Well, I mean, Eric and I said this yesterday. We said. McCarthy is endorsing him. And then Trump came out against him yesterday. Johnson's nomination capped off a whirlwind whirlwind day, but one that ended with House Republicans appearing to finally unite around a speaker nominee. In an internal roll call validation vote for Johnson, all but three GOP members who voted present said they could vote for Johnson for Speaker on the House floor. 
while at least a dozen members were absent, putting him under the 217-vote threshold in the room. Johnson signaled optimism that he would win their support, too. Democracy is messy sometimes. Now, see, I wish Eric was here because he would immediately go back to John Boehner. I don't like messy. Uh, John Boehner said that one time, and Eric just never forgot it. Democracy is messy sometimes, Johnson said. This House Republican majority is united. Well, for the moment, maybe. Uh, The intention, Johnson said, is to go to the House floor on Wednesday. This is servant leadership. We are going to serve the people of this country. We're going to restore their faith in this Congress, this institution of government. America is the last best hope of man on the earth. The scene marked a stunning shift in attitude for House Republicans who had been stuck in something of a doom loop. All right, write that down, doom loop. Uh, of a doom loop in the three weeks since eight of their colleagues joined with Democrats to oust former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Um, let me just see. Uh, see. Uh, Matt Gates, who spearheaded the move to oust McCarthy, said Johnson's nomination was worth it. We adore him. We think he's going to do a great job for the country and the right reasons. Mike Johnson Uh, has not been bought and paid for, Johnson will do what is right. One thing I did notice yesterday, no topics. You really didn't hear a lot of topics. You know, this is the issue of why we will vote for him, or here's what he is going to do. And even Johnson himself, I saw the quote, was just like, we're just going to unite the party, unite the party, unite the party, unite the party. There really wasn't like you saw three weeks ago. Here's our problem, and here's what we will demand that we get. It may be he may have made deals or will be making deals tomorrow. But as of this moment, I haven't seen anything there. So he may have the numbers to uh, to uh, to do it. You know. Again, I don't. I've never sat in one of these conferences, but you would think that day one after they ousted McCarthy, they would have said, "All right, let's go through all the members. <laughs> Which one can? We're just going to read off all the members. Raise your hand if you would consider them, because if Mike Johnson came up and he got two seventeen three weeks ago, why don't you just nominate that guy? I know it might be a long, long process." to name all 217 Republicans, but it wouldn't have taken three weeks. You could have done that in 20 minutes. Just everybody raise their hand. So wait, wait a minute, and but it's not done yet. So there you go. 866-90-RED-EYE. Uh, right Let's get to some of your calls and comments. We go to Kevin in Knoxville, Kevin, welcome. You're on Red Eye Radio. Welcome to the show. Okay, I just I, first of all, I wanna I wanna uh, condemn the character. I have no respect for any 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 person or group of people who commit cowardly acts. And that, my friend was a very very cowardly act committed against uh, the state of Israel. It is what it is. With that being said. I want to um, touch on that identity politics. See, both sides 
tend to use identity politics, both sides. Republicans tend to bunch all Democrats and liberals together, and Democrats do the exact same thing. And um, that's, it, 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 it destroys America. The story of America. Yeah, but that's not that's not identity politics, Kevin. That is that is exactly no, it isn't. Politics. No, it isn't. Listen, no, it isn't. Just listen to me. Just listen to me. Okay. Listen. If you say, if you say, the Democrats are um, Marxist and barbarous, that is grouping one. That is grouping a group of people. And calling them what you what you see, I'm, I'm you know what I mean I'm, I'm I'm neither Democrat nor Republican. I'm just a plain old American. Okay, I'm who's who said who friend. said that? Uh, everybody says it. I didn't say you said it personally. I'm, I'm just I didn't say you said it personally. No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you're saying this. I'm saying that both sides do the exact okay. same. Okay, here's the difference. Here's the difference. The difference is. Republicans and Democrats exist. They are not, for example, women or men or blacks or or whatever. They're a combination of all types of people who come together because they have a particular political ideology and they think certain way and they they think. Let me let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish here. Uh that you you completely misunderstand identity politics because when you if now I don't group all democrats and say all democrats think alike but I do say for example on 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 identity politics that is a core of the democratic party judging people by groups and I'm not talking about based on what you think for example, if you belong to a conservative group, there's a set of ideals that you believe in, and therefore you can more generalize that because a political party agrees with that. For example, on the as we talked about here, on the liberal transgender activist movement, the radical transgender activist movement, uh, I think 99% of Democrats in Congress have voted that men should compete, but uh, you know, but that is uh, again, that is where when we when we talk about it, that's based on ideology and what they think on the issues. That is not identity politics. Identity politics, and thank you so much for your call. Identity politics is judging people by their physical characteristics, or for example, Jews by not their religion, but by their class status. Their class or ethnicity or religious status, because all Jews don't think alike, all Catholics don't think alike, all Protestant Protestants don't think alike. And that's the difference. And so it's really, thank you so much for your call, but it's really a pretty weak argument to say, because you say, well, the Democratic Party thinks this way and the Republicans think this way. Well, we never say all, but when we look at it, we say, you know, as we did with the uh, equity bill, that 99.9% of, of Democrats in the federal level, because we talk about that, in Congress, which is the federal level, believe this because they voted this way. That's not identity politics.
that's based on you joining and telling the American public, I belong to this ideology. And we're pretty upfront with issues, and we've said it many times, you know, on uh, critical race theory, for example, and identity politics. Identity politics is the core of the Democratic Party. Critical race theory is the core where you judge all white people as being culturally racist. That's identity politics. Identity politics, you may have a case by saying, by saying, okay, if all Democrats don't think uh, a particular way in Congress, you shouldn't say all Democrats. You should parse it out to 99% or 90%. Well, that's exactly what we do. But that's not the same thing. But there are general things institutionally that they believe in. And identity politics, the Democratic Party is institutionalized. That's why we even said earlier, and we said at the very beginning, uh, I don't believe most Democrats, because older Democrats certainly are not uh, anti, you know, anti-Semitic. But when you look at that poll there, young people, yeah, the majority of young people that are Democrats, according to the poll, not are only anti-Semitic, but agree with Hamas that genocide is okay against Jews. 86690 Red Eye. We'll be right back with more Red Eye Radio with Eric Harley and Gary McNamara. Radio. He's Eric Carly. He's out sick. I'm Gary McNamara. I am in. Um, just to the last call, I just just sitting there during the uh, the break there, and just thought to myself how weak that argument is that both sides practice identity politics. His point was because uh, Republicans say, "Well, all Democrats think this way," and Democrats say, "All Republicans think that way." You actually don't hear that too often. You may hear this is the official position of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party based on legislation that was passed. That's not identity politics. And looking at a group that was formed because of ideology and the stance on the issues is not identity politics. Identity politics is a racism of critical race theory. Identity politics is a conservative black being called an Uncle Tom and not genuinely black because they hold uh, a opinion that is different from the Democratic Party, and you judge them and their mindset by the color of their skin. That's identity politics. Even in the media. Well, Republicans always call the media liberal. No, they say the mainstream media. There's an acknowledgement that there are uh, conservative media. Uh, in fact, it's the, it's the, uh, uh, the conservatives and the Republicans that have noted, for example, Barry Weiss and other liberals that have formed uh, their own media entities because they believe that the mainstream media is not practicing journalism. So we acknowledge that. This is Red Eye Radio on Westwood One. It's Red Eye Radio 
Gary McNamara and Eric Harley talk about everything from politics to social issues and news of the day. Whether you're up late or you're just starting your day, welcome to the show from the Uniden America Studios. This is Red Eye Radio. All across America and around the world, we are Red Eye Radio. I'm Gary McNamara. Eric's not sick. Just having some respiratory problems, and hopefully he's back uh, uh, tomorrow. We shall uh, we shall see, but we'll carry on. Eight six six ninety Red Eye. Yeah, the more I just think about the uh, the last caller who was saying, well, both parties practice identity politics because. You know, Democrats will say, well, they're Republicans and Republicans will say they're Democrats. I'm like, well, that's not a identity politics. Uh, the last caller had a complete misunderstanding of what identity politics is because it's owned by the Democratic Party. It, I mean, it, it, it is. I mean, it's just uh, the, when Tim Ryan ran against Nancy Pelosi in 2018, he said so. That's our biggest problem. We practice identity politics. And uh that's owned by them. Republicans may have their problems. Identity politics is not one of the problems. You know, you don't hear. You, you, for example, you could say there was a problem with the Republican Party and identity politics if they started saying that any white person who is a liberal is not truly white. Then you could say, yeah, they got a problem with identity politics. They don't say that. Identity politics is owned. And identity politics, and I'm so happy that uh, I read earlier what uh, uh, what the uh, friend of our show, Carl, had to say. Uh, and I read his Facebook post about the Harvard-Harris poll that shows unbelievable amounts of young people that believe Hamas was justified and a significant portion that identified it as genocide and said the genocide was justi- justifiable. And it's exclusively really with young people. And it's like, why is and and the more highly educated, the more likely you are to hold anti-Semitic views and those particular views. And then reading Noah Rothman's column in National Review, where he points out uh, the piece in The Atlantic by a liberal talking about. How the hell did the left get this way? What happened in the United States where you have these in, incredible amount of, of young people that believe in genocide? The genocide is acceptable. And the slaughtering and beheading of babies is justifiable. Where in the world does that come from? And in the Atlantic piece, they get down to Identity politics. They call it, you know, intersectionality, but inter intersectionality, excuse me. But it's the same thing. They're just using a different term for it. And they go through point by point, even in the Atlantic piece, that's what it's about. And I said, that's what we said earlier. It's simply identity politics. You judge people as a group. And you judge them as a group as, as either being a victim or an oppressor, and the oppressors are so bad that they need to be severely regulated by the government. And the perfect example is critical race theory. Critical race theory is a belief that all whites, the part that we're talking about that's being promoted in schools, 
that whites are culturally racist to the point that it might as well be in their DNA. And all whites have it. And if they say, no, I don't judge by color, well, they just don't know that they have it, which is a great convenient excuse. They don't know that they're culturally racist. And therefore, society must be set up with the realization that all whites are racist and therefore society must be set up that way in order to limit the power of whites. Now, what's the falsehood in that? That all whites are culturally racist. You have to take a huge leap in order to get there. We had talked about, I'll get to the specific thing here because it was interesting when you get to DEI in companies, the training that they're making you do. And the one question we saw on a on a, in a DEI training, and and this was you know just talking about that. This they didn't even they eventually get to race on it, but it was basically you have one person over here, one person over here who uh, was is privileged, and uh, they were privileged, and their parents paid for their education, therefore they got an internship, and prospective employers looked at that internship and said, okay, you get the job. Meanwhile, the person who worked 50 hours a week to be able to go to college, they were ignored by these companies because obviously the employers would look at the person with the internship as the one that was most qualified. And I went, well, they're making a huge assumption there. They're making the assumption that industry and business looks and stereotypes the same way that <laughs> the liberal making and by the way it's only liberals that do the de that that come up with the de dei training to the last caller it's not conservatives that are doing that <laughs> but they assume that employers think a particular way because if you know my background when i went to college i looked i go well wait a minute i would look and go well no the person that worked the person that worked 40 hours a week and went to college, to me, they're the ones that would first catch my eye. And I know because I worked a job and a half, full-time job and a half and went to college. Never slept. Maybe that's what prepared me for this job. And I know what it taught me. So that was my experience. Everybody's experiences are different, individualized. Once you start stereotyping, this is what society thinks, therefore things must be done this way, that's where you're the bigot. But, yeah, it's when, when, you, when you look at where, where it has led to, and Eric and I said a long time ago, we said, you know, when if you can convince young people that a boy can be a girl just because they say so, and they magically become another sex when that's scientifically impossible. You ask the question, where would that, where does that lead if that's what they're teaching on campuses uh, of, of you know, these, these Ivy League schools, for example, that are teaching this, where you've seen some of the most anti-Semitism, not from all the students, but that's where you're seeing the most. And the polling shows the higher educated you are, the more anti-Semitic you are, and the more you're willing to justify genocide and the beheading of babies and the raping of women and the burning of people alive. 
But you look at it, when Eric and I said, what would that lead to? When you can convince somebody that's something that is obvious to everybody, both critical thinking-wise, instinct-wise, that biology can't be changed, and you convince people not only that, but you convince them that men should be able to compete against women, and if women attempt to stop it, we will destroy their lives. You didn't see the Democratic Party up in arms what was going on at the Ivy League schools with Leah Thomas and the threats. You don't see them backing Riley Gaines and saying, we need to protect women. They're either silent or they're for it. And we know on the equity bill, they're for it because that's how they voted. And Eric and I always said, if you can get to that point of actually convincing young people that something like that uh, is true, that a man can be a woman and a man should be competing against a woman, then what the hell else can you convince them of? Well, we found it out in the poll now. You can convince them that genocide is justifiable. So, congratulations, liberalism. You have succeeded in convincing over half of some demographics of young people and in the higher 40 percentiles of 18 to 34 that genocide of Jews is justifiable. That's the success of liberalism. Because that's the only place that is being taught. Let us go to Josh in Eureka, California. Josh, welcome. You're on Red Eye Radio. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> I'm astounded that people can even defend them. Um, and, you know, and just the, the amount, I mean, there's a special place in hell for people that can kill babies, let alone 41 of them and behead them. And then, you know, for for all these Ivy League schools to to justify that and to, to defend them. I mean, what, how, how, I don't understand anything that could justify that. I mean, it's, it's insane to me. Yeah, you know, I know. I, I, well, no, I, I know how frustrating it is because you look at it and, you know, we've said this before that, and we'd said this when we were always wondering why the first thing that, um, the left threw out in any opinion that I, that we would have as conservatives as being racist. It's like, well, it's not racist. You can't even make the argument because here's why I believe what I believe. It's the opposite of racism. And then one day, remember, we sat back and we were thinking, throwing stuff around, and we went, oh, I got it. I know why. They think that way. And if and so we sort of tend to project, and that's why you're con- that's why you're sitting there and you're dumbfounded and I'm dumbfounded because we just believe that as human beings, that we all have, especially in the United States, that we all have the same sense of of fairness and and love of 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 life and and freedom and autonomy, and we don't. We don't, and it's being taught. And I, I just, you know, you just wonder 
I've always stated I would like to get into the mind of these radicals just for a day to see what their thought process is. Because there doesn't seem to be any thought process. There's no willingness to discuss. It's simply rah, 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 kill the Jews. As you're seeing, there is no, you know, and that's why I don't like when they say, well, this is because of the uh, intellectualized, and thanks so much for your call, uh, discussions that are going on at these schools. I, I don't believe they're in, it's intellectual at all. There is nothing intellectual about it. They may That may be the label of it, but it's the opposite of what an intellectual, you know, at least in the United States, what the label of an intellectual should be. More of your calls and comments coming up on the speaker race and more. 86690 Red Eye. Coming up, more with Gary McNamara and Eric Harley. It's Red Eye Radio. It's Red Eye Radio. He is Eric Hurley, and I'm Gary McNamara, and Eric is out uh, sick uh, this morning. Let's uh, head back to uh, you. I'm sorry, I got too many windows open here. <laughs> Let us get uh, to Eli in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, about the speaker race. Uh, Mike Johnson is the latest down nominee. That vote's supposed to go on. He may be close to getting it. And before we head to Eli here, just very quickly i want to go to uh just read something here it's not an audio cut i just want to read something uh because it was really interesting uh this was uh when asked what changed the temperature in the room uh gop representative mike lawler of new york chalked the difference up to three weeks quote i think everyone has hopefully exhausted the infighting in their systems and we can move forward and get back to work on behalf of the american people uh, and focus on the issues, personality conflicts, served nobody in there. That's a quote. Uh, Eli in Fort Worth. Hi, Eli. You're on Red Eye Radio. Welcome to the show. Hi. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Hi. Hey, so, you know, as as I look at it as a, as a separation within our Republican Party, you know, I can give you the best example. Kevin McCarthy, as a speaker, he represented his party, and he voted on the package based on what his opinion was what a lot of people don't realize is he was voting on that package and agreeing with the democratic party to fund the government to keep it running from personal experience i can tell you how that affects me personally i served in the u.s armed forces in iraq and afghanistan and in 2009 in the obama administration when the government shut down we were deployed in iraq and we were told by our command team hey you're not getting paid so we don't care if you don't pick up a weapon and go out there and do what you got to do but personally I'm serving the United States military. I'm not serving a, serving a faction. I still had to go out there and do my job. Our financial institution said, hey, you know what? We will cover your pay to the government reopens, and then once you get paid, we'll seek reimbursement from you. But it trickles down to the lowest person, which is me and you and everybody else out there is being represented. We're not being represented correctly. You know, that that's the whole issue. Well, I don't, what, are you, what are you talking about? I don't understand. I don't know what you're specifically talking about when you're saying – McCarthy was voting on a plan that the 
Democrats. Well, you know, to, to fund the government, you know, it felt, it felt like a Republican Party felt like he sided with the Democrats. Well, that's not what happened. That, but that's not what happened in this case. In this case, okay. there was one plan and it was re- and it was rejected. And so they went to the House Freedom Caucus, which is the conservatives of the House. And they came okay. up with the plan that would have actually cut spending, but in a but in a continuing resolution that would just last a month. But still, there were cuts in it. And it was Gates leading the eight people to vote against it. But it was not something that came from the Democrats. It was something that came from the most conservative group in the Congress, which is the House Freedom Caucus. That's what they voted against. And so so when you got to... The the thing that got to us is when when uh, Jim Jordan, for example, uh, uh, you know, got it. He had actually, in order to get the blue state Democrat, or excuse me, the blue state Republicans to vote for him, did something that was so anti-conservative and promised that he would put up legislation that would double the deduction on the the uh, the, the the salt tax that the Republicans and Trump got, and. In order, you know, in order that they may be able to win their districts, but he would have needed all the Democrats to get that because very few Republicans would have voted for that. So Jordan, who was viewed as so conservative and the Trump guy, he was offering things that needed full Democrat support to get. And the other thing is when we, you know, when um, we had a caller to the show who said, well, we need somebody who's going to fight like Trump for the budget. We said, well, Trump never fought for the budget. He never exactly. veto- he never vetoed a budget. He never sat there and said, okay, we can't be spending this, because especially the first budget they put through, when they had the House to Senate, they were severely criticized by conservatives for not cutting it more. Trump could have vetoed it. Trump could have said no. He didn't. So they were asking McCarthy to do something, and then using the toughness of Trump for something that Trump wouldn't have even done. And so... That's the thing. And look, it's part of its personality. Part of it is also, look, I think that most Republicans agree what has to be done, and that's cutting. But the American public, yeah. including Republicans, I'm talking about the rank and file voter. They say they want to right. cut, but if it affects them, they don't want the cut. And any cut exactly. that's going to happen of substance is going to affect people, including Republicans. The majority of Republicans, just like the majority of Democrats, believe we can balance the budget by getting rid of foreign aid and wasteful spending. That is completely incorrect. Yet both majorities of parties believe it. And so you have Republicans that really want to cut. But if they close down the government, as Gates was suggesting in four weeks, who gets the blame? Exactly. Can you win that politically? And that's what the debate really, I think, encompasses. And it was like, I think what they needed was a, you know, you needed at least incrementally to do what you need to do. But really, this two years of Republicans having the House was about, well, telling the American people the truth of what's really going on and what needs to be done.
You're listening to Red Eye Radio from the Uniden America Studios. It's Red Eye Radio. He's Eric Harley, and I'm uh, Gary McNamara. Eric uh, has a morning off because he's under the weather. He's not feeling well at all. So uh, you and me. And and, uh, to the last caller, look, it's the frustrating thing is uh, I think most Republicans agree with what has to be done, you know, when it comes to um, when it cons- I'll, I'll, let me say conservatives, I think because there is a difference. Many Republicans are no longer conservative. Eric and I've talked about this a lot. There is a we know it. We know it from doing talk radio uh, budget issues. When when I first became a talk show host thirty four years ago, I'm now into year thirty five. <laughs> we finished thirty four and into thirty five. Back in 89, one of the first things, one of the first things I participated in was, and and it was already uh, ongoing, and it was uh, the clean sweep of people in Congress because the deficit was too high. Back in 89, this is. And that's the last, really, I that I can, maybe there was another one. I, I don't remember because that's the one that I remember the most because uh, I remember a bunch of my listeners had formed a group and they were going to be out in front of the local congressional office. And this was in uh, where I started talk radio in Niagara Falls at uh, WJJL in Niagara Falls. I did the viewpoint show and they invited us. You got to come on out. So I did. And it was actually pretty funny because you have all these people out there that got every type of broom and they're just, you know, they're sweeping the front steps and just sweeping and cameras are out there and it was happening all around the nation. Sweep them out. If they're not going to do something about the deficit. Well, I think the deficit then, let me just look really quickly, very quickly here. Uh, (laughs) Excuse me, not, not deficit, the debt, Uh, debt in 1989. Okay, here we go. National debt in 1989. What is it? 32 trillion now. It was three trillion in nineteen eighty nine. Ten times greater now. Over ten times greater. And that's when there was passion. And the last and we've documented this because it's it's what happened. The last real oomph of any type of unity on debt reduction. And I say this more from the rank and the 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 Democrat, excuse me, the Republican voter was really when Trump first started running in in well not first started running, but by the time we got to the fall of 2015, and Paul Ryan had replaced John Boehner, and he wouldn't renegotiate the deal that the Democrats had done, that people didn't like what Boehner did, and that's where the swamp came from. The swamp came from that. And that's really what catapulted Trump. It was he was fighting the swamp. He was fighting the Republican leadership that didn't want to cut, including Paul Ryan. And that was about cutting. And as we always like to say, and I know Trump people don't like it, but it's a reality of what happened. Within six months, Trump was talking about the fact that we needed to borrow trillions of dollars 
for infrastructure because interest rates were so low. We, of course, criticized him on the show and said no. Because it's not that interest rates are low now and you're going to pay back the principal while the interest is low. If we would have borrowed trillions of dollars for infrastructure back then, it's like when we borrowed trillions of dollars for infrastructure over a year ago. That principal's not being paid off. And now, uh, instead of paying 0.000001% for a six-month treasury bill, uh, what is it now, 5%? And that was going to add to the deficit. And we said no. And when Trump said that, it was almost as if the approval was there for the Republican Party to say debt doesn't matter anymore. And then for Obamacare, when the Republicans got the power, get rid of Obamacare. Well, by that time, Republicans, were some were on Obamacare. They liked the benefits. They didn't like the mandates. Get rid of the mandates. Keep Obamacare. The Republicans were in power. Couldn't get rid of it. Why? People felt they were getting a discount or in some people's cases, something free. And that's where we are now. Now you've got the conservatives that want to cut, not knowing whether even the Republican Party rank-and-file voter really wants to cut outside of their incorrect belief that we can balance the budget by getting rid of foreign aid and wasteful spending which we cannot solve the problem that way. It's impossible. It's the same logic we use in that as we look to electric vehicles or running the grid on solar and wind. It's impossible. Can't happen. So that's where we are right now. You don't have the you don't have the Senate, you don't have the executive branch. You can't lose more than four uh, Republicans. And some Republicans are stating, we need to shut the government down now. Well, who gets the blame? Is the goal to shut down the government now to win what? And this is what we talked about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, when Gates was talking about this. What are you trying to win? What is the point? And as I told the last caller... Right, we went into the, uh, the the break, and I just want to make sure I, I clarify it, uh, is uh, that um, uh, that when it comes to, uh, is, is your goal to say, let's shut down the government now? Do you believe you can convince the American public if the government is shut down to vote more Republican? Or, as I stated, when Republicans won the House, as Eric brought up, he remembers when I said it, where I said, this is not about really getting great legislation. It's about taking the House, having the speakership, and educating to the American public the insanity of our debt, the insanity of our deficit, the insanity of the inflation that it causes, and everything else that the Democrats are doing that is insane. But it's going to be an education process of pounding it over and over again. 
It's not about the fact that you're going to be able to force through legislation. And so the goal has to be to win in 24. Other people disagree. We all basically agree on the issues. I mean, the people in in Congress and true conservatives. But when it comes to right now, I don't. and, And I don't know if Eric said it on the air or off the air. But he said to me, he said, I don't know where the Republican voter stands on truly cutting the budget. That if they have to take a hit, will they truly goes? There is no evidence to suggest that the Republican voter wants cuts that will affect them. And if you're going to solve this problem of the monstrosity of the debt that we have, you're going to have to do that. And so that's the cluster that we're in right now. And so the one thing I did, you know, Mike Johnson, when, you know, he uh, became the nominee and they're supposed to vote later on, and there's a belief that all the personality conflicts, as uh, Congressman Lawler said from New York, that he believes more about personality and now we need to remain united, which means everything that everybody was voting on the last three weeks, if that's true what Lawler said, and if it's true that he's going to get the majority of the votes out there now, they realize we got to do something. That what did this really accomplish? And that's what we questioned the entire time. What did you what did you accomplish? And as he said, this has been a fight over personalities. And then when I see and I know they're attempting to show unity, but when I saw Johnson yesterday and and it was all these members of the Republican Congress taking selfies with him and all laughing and joking. To me, this isn't a laughing and joking time right now. It looked too celebratory. You know, I just I didn't. I, I, and uh, I have the uh, the the uh, the video of him talking, but the audio is terrible. If there's if there's better audio that comes in, I, I will play it of of uh, of Mike Johnson. And I don't care. I never care. I never had a favorite. I just want somebody to be able to market to the independent because that's what I believe the first you know goal of the speaker has had to be this last two years. You market to independents. That's the one thing that I do have a disagreement with. I have a disagreement with the Republicans that say, no, I need somebody who's going to fight and has my opinion and my anger. Well, that's not why you have a speaker right now. A speaker is not there to talk to the converted. It's to talk to the people that wouldn't vote Republican in 2022, but may be willing to if the message and tone is right, the reality of it. And I go back. To the memes out there, and many of you have probably said it. Oh, look what you got with Biden, and you voted for him because of mean tweets. And there's two ways to look at it. Yeah, that's stupid of people to do that. But if people vote that way, maybe you shouldn't have put out the mean tweets, which means you've already doesn't matter if it doesn't matter if I say we need to cut the deficit. It doesn't matter if I say we need to close the you know, we need to close the border because this is 
this is insanity going on at the border. Look at what's happening here. It's, you know, it, there's no difference if you're converted, if I say it that way, or say, we've got to straighten this out. But there is to the independent. Tone matters. How you market something matters. And there's a difference. I get pushed back on that all the time, constantly. You're wrong. Well, I hope I am. I hope that anger, it would be great if the American public is that angry and independence and moderate Democrats are that angry what's going on that anger will sell them now. And I'll gladly say I was wrong. But I'd rather not take the chance because I think you can convince them either way. If they, you believe they can, they're ready to be convinced by somebody who's angry, well, they will also be convinced by somebody who isn't angry where the tone is right, where you just say, look at this. This is nuts. And that's what it is. I view everything that's happening going on as more semantics than actually things of substance right now with the Republican Party. We'll see where they go. All right, 866-90-RED-EYE. Coming up, more with Gary McNamara and Eric Harley. It's Red Eye Radio. It's Red Eye Radio. I'm Gary McNamara. He's Eric Harley. He is uh, out. Let's quickly go to Keith in Bowling Green about uh, that polling that was uh, done that showed an enormous amount of younger people in the United States okay with the genocide of Jews. That's not an exaggeration, but okay with the genocide that happened in uh, in Israel and support Hamas. Let's go to Keith. Keith, welcome. Hi. Hey, been with you and Eric since uh, you guys took over with uh, Bill Mack. But uh, it, that is absolutely frightening. But a lot of liberals are socialists. Socialists in the last century killed millions of people. Stalin killed 30 million. Chairman Mao killed 60 million. And what Israel done to themselves with their liberals in their country is they started disarming everybody. Nobody had their handguns anymore. Now they're rearming their population but because they were practicing gun control look what it cost them what do you think gear uh, yeah i mean that that uh, when when you see i mean it was interesting because uh uh that was a topic of discussion especially the first couple of days uh in there about israeli gun control but then the point that was brought up is that there's a lot of people that are part of the auxiliary forces and they're armed. The only thing is you didn't see any stories of the civilians actually fighting back. I'm sure there were, but you didn't see massive fighting like you would see in many states. If that actually happened, if people actually came in, people would uh, would fight back. But as to the the whole thing about Marxism, yeah, we brought that up to start off the show. The role of Marxism in all of this, and this is the basis of Marxism and what they believe when I read uh, from uh, my, uh, my, my buddy this is what created the Nazi Holocaust this mindset telling me what's different
This is Red Eye Radio on Westwood One. Now, it's Red Eye Radio. Gary McNamara and Eric Harley talk about everything from politics to social issues and news of the day. Whether you're up late or you're just starting your day, welcome to the show from the Uniden America Studios. This is Red Eye Radio. All across America and around the planet, we are Red Eye Radio. I'm Gary McNamara. Eric is sick. Get better soon and get back here. Yeah, I, I just, I, all I know is I got a text uh, when I woke up yesterday that uh, he wouldn't be in that, just really having some problems. So, dinking into a lot of specifics, and uh, I will respect his privacy. Not really. <laughs> uh, no, he just, um, uh, you know, his lungs just weren't good. So, and he had COVID. We know that last week. So, hopefully he gets better soon and gets in here. There's just too much. Too much going on. You know, I, I was thinking yesterday after uh, you saw that uh, Jenna Ellis, the uh, former attorney uh, for uh, Trump, that uh, she pleaded guilty to one minor felony. Uh, I started thinking because when uh, Sidney Powell the other day, when when she pleaded guilty to misdemeanors and got no jail time and Jenna Ellis would get no jail time, and the, uh, I can't think of the other name of the other uh, attorney also that will get no jail time, and none of them were charged under the RICO Act. You're like, okay, this is definitely, I mean, it's obvious this is weakening uh, the prosecutor Fannie Willis's case against, against Trump. Andrew McCarthy pointed it out when talking about Jenna Ellis. He said, if, you know, what normally is done in this situation is, you would you would convict all of them under the RICO Act because they're all part of it. And then you would get them to plead to the, you know, a, a RICO violation. That way you can set up. You can set up against Trump that, look, all these people pleaded guilty to RICO. You know, they're all part of the enterprise. They've admitted they're guilty and part of the enterprise. And the enterprise is with Trump. He's the ringleader. You lose that when all of them, none of them, plead guilty to any RICO violation, the Racketeering Act. And so you say, what's going on? Because this makes the big case against Trump much weaker when it comes to RICO violations. So you ask, what's going on? Well, maybe, maybe this isn't about prosecuting Trump and putting him in jail. Maybe it's about getting all the attorneys that supported him and were some of his most fervent supporters that the election was stolen on the stand, publicly admitting that the election was not stolen and they were bamboozled to thinking it was by Trump, that the goal is political, not criminal. That's the goal of Fannie Willis. 
when this all first happened, and we got pushback, but we were right. When this first happened, we said, when Jenna Ellis came out, and I wish Eric was here today because I remember when Jenna Ellis, and, and she came a little bit later on after Sidney Powell. Oh, I can't think of the other guy's name. That was that was also prominent. Uh, she came later on, and she was. I I looked. I remember when she came out. I go, wow, she's a pit bull, and man, and she was going after Dominion and Smartmatic, and I went, my God, is she putting herself in in civil liability by the things that she was saying about it? And we had said that from the very very beginning. You can sit there all day and just say the election is stolen when you start making specific allegations against companies, private entities, and you have no evidence to back that up. You're screwed. And so I thought that most of most of what they would, uh, you know, be liable for would be in a civil case. And we know, for example, with Fox and others, by the way, I still don't understand. I still don't understand the popularity of of Tucker Carlson with Trump supporters. It it boggles my mind. (laughs) Fox looks at him as the reason that they've got to pay billions of dollars. Because he was the one out there going crazy about Trump. He's throwing, you know, basically throwing crap out there and everything else. And it was like, when they confront Tucker Carlson with it, it's like, well, you know, I was just angry. <laughs> yeah, that would be the point. Why would you be angry? Because you were stating behind the scenes that Trump was completely wrong. And I remember, I remember the time that that he started questioning it on the air, whether they had the evidence or not. I remember when that happened. And so that's that's how they that's one of the reasons they got him is because because Tucker Carlson was going crazy, cursing Trump out everything. It's like it never happened. It's like we all love Tucker Carlson because he loves Trump. Well, we're just going to forget about that. It's like I don't understand it. I just but whatever. That's not really the the point I'm trying to make here. But the point is is the goal just to get all the all the attorneys Publicly, I mean, you get Sidney Powell up there to apologize and say, no, the election was not stolen. To get Jenna Ellis up there to say the election was not stolen. To get the other attorneys up there to say the election was not stolen. To get Mark Meadows up there, you know. And and testifying to get anybody else up there to to say the exact same thing. No, the election wasn't stolen. Is the goal to get everybody around Trump? Now, I'll say this. When you look at, and Andrew McCarthy pointed this out, when you see what I, I, and he doesn't specifically get into this. Um, They said, not surprisingly, this is Andrew McCarthy. Ellis did not plead guilty to the dubious charges against her in the indictment, instead to obtain the guilty plea, Willis filed a new one-count charge, charging document accusing Ellis of aiding and abetting false statements and writings. Well, this is about as trivial as it gets. The prosecutor is not even alleging that Ellis herself 
provided false information to state officials, only that she assisted more senior counsel in particular. It appears Ruli Giuliani in providing false information. In the, uh, in the indictment, to which, again, Ellis did not plead guilty, it alleges... Uh, well, I don't want to get into that, though. I want to get into what specifically they, they, they got her uh, 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 for. Uh, it is not clear from what I've seen of the new charging documents that these were the false representations which Ellis pled guilty in aiding and abetting uh, the dissemination. Nevertheless, in court this morning during her uh, during her uh, during her speech, the part of the guilty plea proceeding where the defendant personally relates to what she did that makes her guilty. Ellis said she helped present election claims to the state without performing due diligence to ensure their accuracy. I'm just, I, again, I, I look at some of these, eh, these charges and go, are they unconstitutional? Because anybody can sit there and say the election was, was, uh, was stolen. And if you say the election was stolen and you say it to a legislative committee, does that make it a crime? But if you present false evidence to that committee, are they saying that's like presenting it to Congress in an official uh, in an official setting? But I look at this here because all of these are extremely minor charges. Nobody's going to do any jail time here at all. And there's no RICO charges at all, which would they were you would assume trying to get Trump on so they could, you know, throw him in the cell and throw the key away. And so these are all of his lawyers. And is Trump going to claim, I'm just following the advice of my lawyers. But it's a bad look for the stolen election claim. Forget about whether, you know, the criminal, you know, what they pleaded guilty to was minor and would not be filed in other particular cases. Now, he does make the case with Sidney Powell that she actually hired a contractor to go into the machines illegally, and that's what she pled guilty to. But is the goal actually political to get all the lawyers that everybody remembers saying the election was stolen, the election was stolen, saying publicly the election was not stolen, and then isolating Trump, who they point out just last week, again, was promoting the fact that 2020 was stolen. So you get everybody that surrounded him. And I guess the big prize would get Giuliani to say it. That would be the biggest prize. No, the election was not stolen. To get Sidney Powell was huge. Politically was huge. Not in the substance of the criminal trial. And Trump came out and just said, she was never my attorney. She was part of the team. He was still president of the United States. She was on stage when he said, this is my legal team. We remember that. We have long memories. So it, when when they, after she started promoting the fact, I believe it was she started promoting the fact that uh, that the governor and the secretary of state took a bribe from Smartmatic. And that's when the Trump campaign distanced themselves from her. At that point, 
and said, and she had even said, I was never compensated by them, which means I never sent him a bill yet. I didn't send him a bill. And that's how they separated themselves at that particular point. She didn't say, I mean, she was on the stage and he said, this is my defense team. He said it. We have memories. So then he came out this week, said she was never a lawyer of mine. Then why was she on stage with all the other lawyers representing you? Jenna Ellis, I don't think he commented on Jenna Ellis, did he? You know, and I just wonder why Jenna Ellis. I know that she was talking about the fact of why isn't Trump with all the campaign money he's using for his own defense. Why isn't he supporting us who supported him in 2020? You know, because to get Sidney Powell to plead guilty to anything is huge. Jenna Ellis, I mean, how much money did she have? What kind of lawyer fees? And that was the other thing, too. That was That's one thing. I would never work for a president ever. Just because of the possibility, if you work closely with the president, odds are you're getting sued. And that's going to cost you a couple of million. Whatever the suit whether it's bogus or not, you're going to get sued. I remember when she was saying the things that she was saying, I went, oh, you know, I've never heard of her before. She's a very young lawyer. How much cash does she have in the bank to do something like this? That's what I'd be thinking all the time. Because that's what kills you. I forgot. I can't think of the guy's name. Oh, um, Michael... Oh, he was never he was never charged with anything, but he was uh, he had worked for the Trump campaign. Was never charged with anything, but he was called to testify before Congress. I think three or four times. He said every single time, just when they call you, that's fifty thousand dollars in lawyer fees. And he said, "I don't have that kind of money," but he had to go, and you got to have a lawyer, and every time it's fifty thousand. I just, you know, they both pleaded guilty to minor charges. They both destroyed their careers. Neither would was willing to fight for it. It could have been a money thing. I don't know. There didn't seem to be any, you know, massive support. I do think that one of the, I did, yes, I did see it on social media yesterday, there's a guy who said that he raised $250,000 for Jenna Ellis and said that he owes her, he wants the money back because she took the guilty plea and said that the election wasn't stolen. I did see that on social media yesterday. And so that makes me wonder, well, if you did have, you still had a couple hundred thousand dollars in cash, then why did you agree to settle? And the same for Sidney Powell. Why? I'm not making an accusation by asking that question. I'm just generally interested. Why did they do a plea deal? And all, we've got three lawyers now that have done the plea deal and said the election was not stolen. We were led down the wrong path. 866-90-RED-EYE. 
Brought to you by Hotshot Secret. Hi, I'm Jen Loomis, a transport safety expert at J.J. Keller, and I'm here to share a tip on roadside inspections. Drivers must always be prepared for a roadside inspection. This means drivers should always have their personal, vehicle, and company credentials organized and ready, and having any shipment paperwork, such as bills of lading or hazardous material shipment emergency response information, organized and ready for the inspection official. Just an FYI, the top two violations written against drivers every year, as well as during Operation Road Check, are log general form and manner and log not current. Both are completely avoidable if the driver keeps the log accurate, compliant, and current at all times. Having the vehicle ready for inspection involves the driver conducting daily inspections and making sure any problems that are discovered are immediately corrected. Vehicle readiness also requires the company to make sure that the vehicle is current on all scheduled maintenance and that the maintenance schedule is adequate. This will make sure the driver is being given a sound vehicle to start with. This tip was brought to you by J.J. Keller & Associates. Visit us at jjkeller.com. Get in touch with Red Eye Radio, toll free at 866-90-RED-EYE. It's Friday Radio. He's Eric Hurley, and I'm Gary McNamara. Eric's out because he is sick this morning. Uh, Lynn Wood, I was thinking of, uh, and he had to give up his, he voluntarily retired his law license before he took a, 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 a punishment back over the, the, uh, the, the summer. And then remember, he said, because he, he's been apparently called either to testify or did testify. I don't know exactly where that is. And remember, he was saying he did not flip on, on Trump because that was the story. And I thought of that because the other story that ABC had yesterday is that uh, ex-chief of staff Mark Meadows granted immunity, tells special counsel he warned Trump about 2020 claims, sources. This is from ABC News. Very quickly here, former President Trump's final chief of staff in the White House, Mark Meadows, has spoken with special counsel Jack Smith's team at least three times this year, including once before a federal grand jury. The sources said Meadows informed Smith's team that he repeatedly told Trump in the weeks after the 2020 presidential election that the allegations of significant voter fraud coming to them were baseless, a striking break from Trump's uh, prolific rhetoric regarding the election. I just wanted to read that part of it. Now, Catherine Herridge from CBS said that that story that ABC had is largely false, and she told them it was. And But I don't have the specific details. She had that on Twitter yesterday. So um trying to see if they have – there's nothing here. ABC still has the story up completely. I'm trying to see if there's anything that they added. I'm sure they're not going to add, but CBS tells us the story was wrong.
the fourth branch of government. Eric Harley and Gary McNamara on Red Eye Radio. And I'm Gary McNamara. Eric is uh, sick this morning. Get better soon. Uh, too much going on, Eric, for you to be out. <laughs> uh, yeah, the I just I found the the tweet from uh, from Catherine Herridge about that Mark Meadows story that uh, uh, that uh, he got immunity and uh, told the special counsel that he warned Trump about the 2020 claims that they were wrong. Uh, Catherine Herridge from ABC. I told AB, I, and this actually she's she put out a quote from Mark Meadows' lawyers, saying uh, we told ABC that our that their story was largely incorrect. People will have to judge from themselves the decision to run it anyway," uh, said George Twilliger, Mark Meadows' lawyer, to CBS News, responding to the new reporting that the ex chief of staff uh, was granted immunity and tells the special counsel he warned Trump about the 2020 claims, and it was a source story from ABC. So we don't have any of the specifics on that. But the more I look at this, the more that I see, and I agree with Andrew McCarthy, and we and we had said this from the very beginning, I didn't see, I, I thought that Fannie Willis was totally perverting uh, the, the RICO law on this. But with each lawyer that pleads guilty to something, Trump lawyer that you know pleads guilty to something out there, um, is it about actually getting Trump or is it about isolating him, knowing that Trump still consistently says the election was stolen? Is the goal from Democrats to get everybody, all the big names that surrounded him, and, you know, get them, uh, get them guilty of, you know, find them guilty or get them to plead even to small criminal charges, but then in the uh, allocution of it, come out and state, nope, sorry, we were bamboozled. The election wasn't stolen. But it's not about putting Trump in jail. It's about winning the election in 24. That if Trump is going to use that, the Democrats simply say, look, all the lawyers that surrounded him all were convicted of something and all had to admit under oath that the election was not stolen. Why is Trump still doing this? Is that their goal? That's my question. Uh, meanwhile, the, the story that I told you about that I'd seen, former Trump campaign lawyer Jenna Ellis pleaded guilty to a felony count of aiding and abetting false statements. Uh, the Fulton County District Judge Fannie Willis initially charged her with a bunch of different teams. Her legal team established a legal defense fund uh, for El- uh, for Ellis, which had raised $219,000 as of Tuesday morning. There has been a push. Uh, Breitbart, for example, uh, tried to contact her. She did not respond uh, to uh, a uh, for a comment uh, and the request from Breitbart News if she planned to return the funds since she is not going to trial and accepted the plea deal. So there was a story that I was uh, trying to find for you there. So 
So there you go. But I, I just wonder, what, what because this is so obvious that there's no RICO case here. It's falling apart. Okay, then why do they do that to begin with? It brings a lot of publicity to it, which then the publicity, because these were RICO charges, when because you don't see the left saying, oh, they didn't get him on the RICO charges. All there's, the left is saying is in promoting the mainstream media, see another Trump lawyer guilty, see another Trump lawyer admitting uh, and pleading guilty, and all because they were promoting that the election was stolen, and every one of them is saying the election is not stolen. And therefore, when Trump continues on that path, they simply say, "Is look how isolated he is. All of his great supporters. And remember, I remember to many Republicans and Trump supporters, Lynn Wood, Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell were absolute heroes. They were deities for what they were doing. And so I wonder if that is actually the goal of the Democrats. Not to actually put Trump in jail, but hey, make it so he can't win the election. And how do you do it? Have everybody around him. His, And I guess the big prize would be Giuliani, but still Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis. Uh, Lynn Wood having to, to testify. You know, what is he going to say under oath? All those things come out, and is the goal just to isolate Trump in 2024 and say, see, he's still promoting the fact it's 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 uh, he's still promoting the fact that the election was stolen. All the people, all his lawyers, have now stated under oath that was false. Interesting stuff. Uh, what else do we got here that I want to make sure we uh, we bring? Oh yeah, the, uh, here we go. The This is from uh, Breitbart here. Uh, Democrats responding to the $200,000. House Oversight uh, Committee Chair James Comer on Monday blew holes into James Bi- Biden's reason, this is Joe's brother, for allegedly cutting President Joe Biden a $200,000 check in 2018, claiming it is a story contrived out of their rear end. Hmm. James Biden, Joe Biden's brother, denied the $200,000 check he gave Joe Biden was due to a pre-existing business relationship. He insisted the money was a return payment for money that Joe Biden lent him. Comer believes that doesn't make a difference. And he's got a great point. He believes the $200,000 payment is suspicious because the money flowed through a distressed entity, AmeriCorps, which loaned James Biden a total of $600,000. On March 1st, 2018, AmeriCorps wired James Biden $200,000. That same day, James Biden sent Joe Biden a $200,000 check. Comer, who subpoenaed James Biden's financial records in September, said James Biden's financial records contradict his claims. Comer told Fox Business on Monday, this check that Jim Biden wrote to Joe Biden came on the same day he received a $200,000 loan from a company that was on the verge of bankruptcy and today is bankrupt. On the check to Joe Biden, his brother put loan repayment. Now the White House is saying that Joe Biden loaned his brother money. Comer says, I don't believe he did. Let's say they pull something out of their rear end that says Joe Biden loaned Jim Biden the money. Either way, we have... James Biden's personal bank records, and I can say with confidence, 
he had no money to pay back Joe Biden other than the $200,000 wire that came from AmeriCorps Health Company. So either Joe Biden was paid $200,000 as part of an influence peddling scheme payback, kickback, dividend, or Joe Biden actually made the loan to his brother, and because his brother influence peddled AmeriCorps Health, he paid him back 200000 Either way, whether Joe Biden loaned him the money doesn't matter. Which is a solid point. Either Joe Biden made 200000 or he didn't lose 200000 Either way, Joe Biden is $200,000 better off because his family's influence peddling scheme. And like everything else, we know that Joe Biden met the CEO. We know that Jim Biden made a pitch for AmeriCorps Health that he could help them get all sorts of money from the Middle East through his brother's contacts in the Middle East. How do we know this? This isn't, this isn't again, an allegation from Republicans looking for the evidence. This is from the bankruptcy filings of AmeriCorps. This is a classic influence peddling 101, and Joe Biden, as uh, as is always the case, was front and center, but this time we have hard evidence that he benefited 200000 You know, it's interesting because, uh, what's his name? Oh, I can't think of his name. Goldman. <laughs> Representative Goldman came out. I'm like, man, he. every time he speaks, it's like, do you understand what you're saying? Because he made the same thing. The Republicans are making a big deal of this. Joe Biden just cares about his family. And this just showed that Joe Biden loaned his brother 200000 because he cared about his brother. Well, actually, by saying that Joe Biden loaned money to his brother and his brother paid him back, showed that James Biden, because he owed his brother was doing influence peddling with AmeriCorps, promising them something, money from the Middle East that he did not deliver because he owed his brother and his brother wanted his money back. It does the opposite. When I saw that from the story from Goldman, they're just going after Joe Biden. Who cares about his family? It's like, no, you can't make that case. In fact, the loan, if, it, if Joe Biden did give him the loan, it makes it look even worse. Because at that point, there was an incentive for influence peddling. Wow, this is really getting good. So, but the the Biden family did respond yesterday. Uh, uh, yesterday, that was the the uh, the point. So the, they responded, and the Democrats responded, and it was like just it was really poor. It's like really, that's what that's that's your point. That since Joe Biden lent James Biden the money, then what? Now, Goldman did say that Comer is cherry picking. Uh, the uh, the bank records to fit the narrative. And I guess we'll see whether that's true or not. Comer can release more of the bank records. Uh, and I'm sure if it gets to the point 
of the impeachment inquiry, and they're in front of of the uh, the, the Congress, and Democrats can ask questions. It will come up at that point. As Comer said, I've seen the accounts. There was no James Biden didn't have two hundred thousand to pay him back. It came directly from AmeriCorps. The transfer went from there to there. <laughs> Are they going to make the case that money is fungible? <laughs> Are the Bidens going to make that case? Well, no, there was money from 20 different other bank accounts that James had of $20,000 each, and money is fungible, and he put it in there, and then he took it out. Well, you'd be able to know whether that happened or not. But it would be interesting if they made the case, if the Bides made the case money is fungible <laughs> after the whole Iran $6 billion. All right, 866-90-RED-EYE. We'll be right back with more Red Eye Radio with Eric Harley and Gary McNamara. It's Friday Radio. I'm Gary McNamara. Eric is out sick. Get better, Eric. All right. This uh, is a Second Amendment story is worth mentioning. Judge John Cronin struck down, federal judge, uh, John Cronin struck down New York City's gun controls that he found gave city officials unconstitutional discretion in the issuance of gun permits. Cronin struck down New York City's good moral character and good uh, cause provisions concluding that they gave city officials a degree of leeway in judgment sufficient to provide them cover in denying permits for law-abiding citizens absolutely he tested the two provisions in light of the supreme court's bruin 2022 decision and then wrote uh in some having considered defendants uh, historical materials and applying the standards set in Bruin. The court determines that the magnitude of discretion afforded to New York City licensing officials empowered them to evaluate an applicant's good moral character and good cause in deciding whether to permit that applicant to exercise his or her Second Amendment rights is not constitutionally permissible under the Second and Fourteenth Amendments. Elsewhere, Cronin emphasized that allotting city officials the authority to judge good moral character and good cause in order to issue gun permit uh, permits lacks any grounding in our nation's historical tradition of firearm regulations. Moreover, Cronin found that the plaintiff suffered irreparable harm in being denied his Second Amendment rights. Cronin's decision is stayed until October 26th to afford defendants an opportunity to consider their appellate options, and whether they wish to seek a stay uh, pending any appeal. That's not going to go any other way once it gets to the, if it gets to the Supreme Court, if they attempt to appeal it. Yeah, what's good moral character? I voted for Trump. Sorry, you don't have good moral character.
This is Red Eye Radio on West. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.